Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Yes, I know it's a couple days late. I had sort of a uh, mental issues over this past weekend and holiday, if we call it that, and I'm going to stick to that because yes, it was. I had quite a bit of a downer, um, but all good. Once again, pulled myself back out of it, and I know these things happen. I'm okay with them. I handle them so much better than I used to, and you know what? No, you can't prevent them. You can only deal with them, manage with them, and move forward. So that's kind of what my weekend was. But after even yesterday, I kind of took a a break yesterday. I needed to, and I was preparing for the first day of school. Today is the first day of school for my daughter. She is entering the fourth grade, and I cannot believe it. I can't believe that my baby is now Almost nine and a half, and she's in fourth grade, which means that she is entering into her 10th year of life. I can't believe it. Can't believe it. And I know you parents out there all say the same thing. Where does the time go? So anyway, I cat back from the bus stop today, and I had this surge of energy, this amazing surge of energy. And I listened to my intuition. I heard this little voice in my head say, you have the energy. You want to run. You want to run. You want to run. So I feel like when my intuition is speaking to me, as it was at that moment, because that's not something I would normally say to myself out loud. To me, that's just crazy. But my body was feeling it, and so was my deepest, darkest soul was telling me to run. So I ran, but I have to act on it almost instantly, or I have to plan for it. I have to know what I'm going to do. And I have to just do it. I can't sit down, think about other things, and get involved in other projects. Otherwise, what I wanted deep down inside kind of gets ignored. And it's sad to say, but it's so, so true. So I just wanted to share that with you. I also want to tell you that I'm going to be having a new sponsor for the podcast. I'm super excited. Thrive Markets. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It's out there now. It is awesome. Thrive Market offers the best-selling natural and organic products at wholesale prices through a $60 a year membership. So you want to think Costco meets Whole Foods online? Pretty cool, right? And even for every paid membership, Thrive donates one membership to a low-income family. And I am just waiting for everything to be settled so that I can bring you guys that official affiliates link through me so you guys can sign up and grab some awesome stuff. It's wholesome products, wholesale prices, and I'll give you a little bit of information about the company. Thrive Market is the first socially conscious online marketplace offering the world's best-selling natural and organic prices at wholesale prices. 
For less than $5 a month or $59.95 annually, members can shop 2,500 of the highest quality food, supplements, home, personal care, and beauty products from more than 400 of the best brands on the market. They're all delivered straight to your door at 25 to 50% off below retail prices. This innovative marketplace offers healthy brands like well, Waleda, I can't pronounce that name, Waleda, Dr. Broner's Spectrum Naturals Garden of Eaton, Bob's Red Mill Natural Path, Eden Food, Annie's Homegrown, Earth's Best 7th Generation Garden of Life, Jason's Naturals, and many more of the highest quality premium brands and products to everyone at 25 to 50% off retail prices. So I am super excited about this company. You can shop for your shop by your values. You'll get free shipping. Like I said, Thrive Gives, sustainability, and top brands. There are so many great things about this company, and I'm excited to bring it to you in the next podcast. But for today, I want to bring you my guest, who I was super excited and proud to get on the podcast, Bernie Siegel. He is a retired MD from general and pediatric surgical practice in 1989 and has since dedicated himself to humanizing the medical establishment's approach to patients and empowering patients to induce their own healing. His best-selling books include Peace, Love, and Healing, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul, and also this book that we talked about today, which is The Arts of Healing, which is Uncovering Your Inner Wisdom and Potential for Self-Healing. This book really opened my eyes because... I read this over the summer while I was on a camping trip, and I read the whole book in practically a day because I had company for my daughter, and they just played around and ran and swam, and I just was glued to this book, and I actually read it halfway through again, so um, I read it one full time and then halfway through, and just what we talked about in the interview is just based on this book. And it is absolutely amazing what he has done with these people to heal themselves. And I'll just read you a couple things, uh, a couple of the titles from inside of the um, of the book. I should say chapters. So let's see: the power of visualization, the brain's creative workshop, when consciousness and unconsciousness disagree, interpreting drawings, animals, psychics, intuitives. Fake it till you make it, laugh out loud, and there is so many more things. So without further ado, I bring you Mr. Bernie Siegel. And by the way, he likes to be called Bernie Siegel, not Dr. Siegel. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another show. So happy to have you here. I have a special guest on the phone with me today. His name is Bernie Siegel, and I'm going to actually have him go into who he is Uh, I like to hear it from the actual person. It means a lot more to me. But I just want to tell you a little bit about how I found out about him. I am a certified holistic health coach through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, and he was part of the curriculum. And I remember hearing his talk, and I listened to it over and over and over again. I couldn't get enough of him. And I went out and I bought the book, The Art of Healing. And like many books that we buy, they kind of get lost in the shuffle. And this one did too, although it was always out for some reason. And I'm at a point in my life where I'm really digging into 
um, your intuition, which you guys know of since I've been kind of shifting the show a whole lot and really teaching myself and really getting into quantum physics and really starting to understand the science. And it's tough for me because I was never into science and to find myself at this point in my life at the age of 38 really wanting to dig into this. It's kind of surprising to myself. So I wanted to bring him on because one day when I was just going through my books and trying to get rid of a lot of stuff, this book actually fell on my head. <laughs> it was telling me something. So I really got into it once again. And it was just at the perfect time because I had kind of forgot about the talk that he did. But then when this book hit me, literally hit me, I remembered and I dove into this book and I thought this was perfect for what I was diving into. So I just reached out to him and I'm like, let's see if I get an answer. And I did. And I was very excited. So to have you on here, Bernie, it is truly an honor to have you on the show talking with you. And I really want to thank you first and foremost for taking the time to do this with me. So well, after that rant, let's get into <laughs> let's get into you. you're welcome. Let's get into, you know, who right. you are, Thank what you do and you know, what you're saying, I think we both ended up in the same place but coming from opposite directions. See, I was into science and medicine. Um, to put it this way, what we're taught to treat the result not the cause. So you treat a diagnosis but nothing to do with the person. And a patient of mine, when I went to a conference to help me learn how to take care of people, she was sitting next to me and said, I need to know how to live between office visits. That changed my life. When I went back to the office after that weekend workshop, one of my partners said to me, you're gone. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. You're going to quit surgery. And he was right. You know, it may have been 10 or more years later. But I did because I realized I could help more people talking to them, sharing with them, running support groups and doing things. And then I also learned all the things you were talking about. Carl Jung interpreted a dream maybe 100 years ago and diagnosed a brain tumor. Nobody ever tells you that in medical school. Okay? Um, and I began to think I was discovering incredible things because I began to do things with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I mean, she was helping me as a therapist in a sense. And when I drew a picture for her, she started questioning me about my life. See? Um, why is 11 important? I said, what kind of question is that? You have 11 trees in your picture. Oh, I've been doing this 11 months. What are you covering up? What are you talking about? You put snow on a mountain with a white crayon. The page is white. You didn't need the crayon. You added a layer. Oh, it's all my feelings I'm covering up. And it's, I mean, I thought, this is incredible. I draw this outdoor scene from my imagination and look what she's doing. You know, it's like the book falling on your head. There are no coincidences. That's what Elizabeth would always say. And so I got my patients to draw pictures. And then it revealed to me the trouble again with medicine. The, when you talk about the two of us being like in two compartments, you know, the, the brain and then the intuitive unconscious spirit outside. I sent an article to Medical Journal, got returned with this comment, interesting but not appropriate. So I sent it to a psychiatric journal, came back again with the opposite comment. It's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. Um, and I thought, this is terrible, you know? 
what we're doing to people. I always say it's like you have your roof leak, you call a roofer. You know, your toilet doesn't work, you call the plumber. But human beings are not like structures in that sense. We are units. You can't separate our mind and our body. I mean, just because you have a gene for a certain disease doesn't mean you're going to get it. Okay? Um, you have to turn the gene on, and that can relate to your life. So identical twins don't get the same thing on the same day. Uh, but if you look at their personalities, and that's what I began uh, to say to people, what's happened last year in your life? What's going on? Oh, and then doctors would say, oh, so now you're blaming your patients? No, I'm not blaming them. I'm asking them to look at why they might be ill. And another fascinating thing I found was to say to people, what are you going through? See, tell me in a few words what it's like to have cancer, migraine, headache, divorce, whatever. And the words that would come out of them. Now, if they said it was a wake-up call for me, okay, fine. I don't need to ask you what's happening in your life because what the changes that it's induced. But words that people have said, pressure, failure, roadblock, um, I'd say, what else in your life fits those words? And believe me, the look from some people was like, wow. And they'd walk out of the office. It's like, thank you. They knew what they needed to change. Um, and just as an example, this woman, I was visiting a friend doctor who's a neurologist. The nurse said to me, keep your voice down because I'm always full of enthusiasm. And she's lying there with this severe migraine for two weeks and we're waiting for a ride to the hospital. So I wanted to help her. So I went into the room to do a little meditation and relax her. And one of the things I put in the meditation was, you know, how would you describe the headache? what the pain is like. And she said, pressure. Now, since she's not my patient, I didn't say, what in your life fits that? But I sort of got around it in the meditation. If there's pressure in your life and so forth and so on. And then I left her feeling better. Um, and the nurse came out a few minutes later and said, oh, by the way, the headache's gone. She's going home. It's her marriage. Now, that I found fascinating. In 15 minutes, she was free of pain and on the way home. And another that was even more profound, <clears throat> a woman had a malignant melanoma, plastic surgeon in town, removed it. And he called me to say, all she does is scream at me for making her ugly. And he said, Bernie, this isn't a part of her body unless she's wearing a bathing suit, nobody sees it. Can you talk to her? And so I said, sure, send her over. She comes over and I said, what is it like to be going, oh, failure? I said, how does that fit in your life? Well, my body failed me. I said, that's not my question. What fails you in your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Well, I mean, that enlightened her so. She impressed the hell out of me, I got to say, with the changes she started making in her life. Um, and see, even the drawing she did for me was of this very masculine-looking woman, you know, in a suit. Uh, yeah, she had all the parts, you know, eyes, nose, mouth, hands, feet. Uh, but it was so rigid and tight. And I knew that she was afraid of relationships. I'll get hurt again. But once that wall came down, uh, 
what a pleasure it was to see the change in her. Um, and I'd run into her in many places because like you mentioned about the book, yeah, she started looking at ways to help change herself. And, and the sad part is how many decades it takes for science to wake up to simple benefits uh, from music in the operating room to having pets to laughter to all these things that change our internal environment. Uh, and I began to learn this from my patients because, you know, if you're out lecturing and you see somebody sitting in the office you, in the uh, audience you thought was dead, what do you do? I'd go, after I was done, I'd walk over and say, what are you doing here? You know, and they tell me a story. They, they always had a story to tell you about how they changed their life. I laughed because one woman even sent me a letter. Um, and why do I laugh? Because it said that she accepted the fact she had a few months to live. So it goes on to say, I bought a dog, put in a backyard wildlife habitat, laughed more, took vitamins, goes on and on. And the letter ends with, I didn't die and I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? So I told her to take a nap. <laughs> but I mean, there's so many stories where people went someplace special to die, you know, or as one man said to me, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die, you know, or buy a house on the ocean to just sit there and peacefully, and then they live for years. And you realize, again, it's giving your body that message. Or to make it very simple, Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. So I always say, if you love your life and your body, then it's a different message on Monday morning. If you see what you would label as work, it doesn't become work anymore. It's your way of contributing to the world. So you're happy to get up and get going. And, and it's about people. Let's put it that way. I think that what you have to realize is that people are the key. And if you enjoy people, then what you do doesn't matter. But if you don't enjoy people, because that's the other part I laugh about, um, if you don't enjoy people, then you got a problem, no matter what kind of work you choose to do. Um, I was going to quit medicine, you know, to go back to when I first went to that meeting to help me deal with my feelings and, and the patient's feelings. And I had a patient who was a veterinarian. So when he came in, I said to him, I'm going to quit surgery and, and become a veterinarian. He said, don't. I said, why not? He said, come with me. He took me in the waiting room and he said, I want you to know that people bring the pets in. Look what's in your waiting room, people. He said, you have to take care of the people. And that really woke me up. So, you know, I've met miserable landscapers because they're working for people. You know, and on the other hand, you can be a waitress in a restaurant and love people and feel like that's what your job is about. Sending everybody home feeling better, not just putting food in front of them. Yeah, even in restaurants, I always, I love getting to know the staff because they serve you a meal. Then they come over and say, how's everything? And my response is, stop upsetting me. I'm trying to eat dinner. They look at me like, what? I said, look, you know how everything is. It's terrible. You listen to the news. You know what's going on. So don't ask me that when you start food. <laughs> and then they get to know me, you know, and we become family. And I mean it because uh, just to tell you some of my crazy things, because if you help people and get them to laugh, 
everybody loves you. You've made their day better. So I've called the vet veterinarian because we have a house full of pets. And I said, do you see alligators? And the person who answered the phone said, is this Dr. Siegel? Yes. You call the Chinese restaurant and you order a pizza. <laughs> Dr. Siegel, yes. And when you call the pizza place, I always order Chinese food. And is this Dr. Siegel? But you see, the fun is, I was down picking up a pizza the other night. We were talking to other customers because I just can't stand there. But one night I went in and I said, well, is my Chinese food ready? And they had containers from the Chinese restaurant and they put them on the counter and said, of course, here it is for you. And the whole restaurant was laughing, you know, because they knew they had set it up to get me. Finally, because I'm always teasing and and see because also you have to say they're new waitresses and they don't all know me so when you come in and say is the Chinese food ready they look like oh who is this character what's wrong with him but um, again you become a person and I'd say you see that fits in the hospital too if you're a good patient you're more likely to get the wrong treatment see because you're known as a room number or a diagnosis and somebody makes a mistake, walks in and treats you and can kill you. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of people. It's in the top 10 causes of death, you know, medical errors. So if you're in a hospital and you want people to know you, they, uh, not room 407 or the breast cancer, but, oh, there's grandma, you know, there's that nutty guy. Um, I don't care what the name is, but decorate your room, let them know you as a person. I always say, take your baby picture with you and put it in the room. So when they come in and say, who's the cute kid? Say me. <laughs> and then they remember you. And um, yeah, and, and it's just important to be a human being. I call it, the term I made was respite. The word patient means a submissive sufferer. So don't be a good patient. Respite for me is responsible participant. You see, so that you're taking responsibility, you're participating in what goes on around you, and they know it. And there is what I call survivor behavior. On my website, um, it's listed as immune competent personality. Because again, who put it together? A psychiatrist. So he's helping AIDS patients, and he noticed there's something about the ones who don't die, you see, that, you know, that's similar. And so he started spreading that word just the way I learned from sitting in groups of cancer patients, you know, so about, they're not worried about failing, see, oh, I don't love enough, you know, I won't get better, or I have to read his book, I don't have time for books. Yeah, and I've had people that said, draw a picture, I'm not an artist, or I have my 10-year-old son do it for me. I mean, you're facing a life-threatening illness, and you're worried about the grade you're going to get drawing a picture, it's nuts. But um, because of, you know, the wealth of information that comes in that, because if somebody draws the devil giving me poison as their treatment, no, either change your attitude or don't go because of what's going to happen to you. And others will draw the same treatment as a gift from God. See, that's the part that's so fascinating, the power of the mind. I mean, and I don't, just so your listeners know, I don't make up any stories. I mean, these are things that have happened. You know, it's not me making things up so they'll believe me. Um, radiation therapist came over to me one day at a meeting where I was speaking and said, I feel terrible. What's the matter? Oh, they fixed the radiation therapy machine a month ago. 
and I just did my monthly routine inspection. They never put the radioactive material back in the machine. I haven't treated anybody for a month. I said, you're not an idiot, are you? He said, no, I'm not. Why do you say that? I said, because if you hadn't treated anybody for a month, don't you think you would have noticed it? That they had no reaction? I said, you didn't notice because everybody acted as if they were being treated. I thought he was going to pass out. <laughs> I mean, he went, oh my God. And his eyes were popping out of his head. But think about that. People thought they were being treated. So yeah, their skin would get red and tumors would shrink. That's the part that's so freaking fascinating. That's amazing. They were being treated and they responded. And that's why, again, on my website, I have something called uh, deceiving people into health. I learned to lie to people for their benefit. Now, you could call it hypnosis. You call it whatever you want. But if people had faith in you as a doctor and you said something good is going to happen to them, they believed it. And it was a hell of a lot more likely to happen. And particularly, I did a lot of children's surgery. The kids had faith in me and their parents. So if we all gave them positive suggestions and images, and the kids would do beautifully. It was just amazing. You know, and yeah, and even nurses would say to me, how come your, pa oh, your patients are a problem? That's what one nurse said to me. I said, what do you mean my patients are a problem? They're refusing pain medication. I said, did it ever occur to you they're not hurting? She looked at me like I was nuts. You're doing major surgery on people and they're not going to hurt. But what they were saying is, yeah, I'm a little sore, but I don't need, you know, morphine. Uh, and and mm -hmm. the nurses just couldn't believe it. But it's something I saw that how you talk to them during surgery, even if they were anesthetized, they still heard you. The people, when they're sleeping here, you do. I mean, obviously, the alarm clock wakes you up, you know. So it's the same, they're hearing. So I would give them positive messages during surgery. Um, and as I say, all my suggestions would be positive ones, even if it was a lie. Well, just so people understand what I mean by a lie. If you take an alcohol sponge before you go in to draw somebody's blood, you rub their skin to clean it. But what if you said to them at the same time, this is a new kind of sponge, it will clean your skin, but it also numbs it. So you won't feel the needle. Okay. That's a lie, if, if you look at the science. But is it a lie for the patient? No. I mean, two-thirds of them will say, hi, oh, that's great. Why don't the other doctors use that? Okay. And then the other third will say, I felt it. I felt something. But it wasn't the same you know, reaction, if you know what I mean. It still wasn't as bad if I hadn't said that. And the one that used to have me laughing all the time was saying to kids without knowing it in the emergency room, to reassure them, I'd say, don't worry, when you go up to the, in, to the operating room, you'll, you'll go to sleep when you go in the operating room. Now, I'm thinking of anesthesia. The kids would fall asleep when they were wheeled into the operating room because of what I said. I mean, it became a joke because you wheeled them in, they'd fall asleep, and everybody burst out laughing. And some kids would yell at me when I had to pick them up to put them on the operating table. I sleep on my stomach. Why are you turning me over? <laughs> I mean, but that's how literally they took it. So I learned to use healing language. Again, something doctors are not trained to do. Yeah, if you're a hypnotherapist or a psychiatrist, you may be taught more about how to talk to people. But if you're going to be a surgeon, oncologist, internist, you know, cardiologist, you're not taught how to talk to people. And I've seen people have an arrhythmia in the operating room 
and I just started talking about the steady rhythm, you know, and on and on about music, and his heart went back to normal. And, and that is what converted people. Because they always said, nobody was against success. They might think I was crazy when I'd start doing something. Well, like playing music in the operating room. See, I was an explosion hazard. I'm bringing in a tape recorder, an electrical appliance, you got explosive gases. But within a few weeks, everybody felt better because of the music. And then, of course, all the other operating rooms suddenly have tape recorders, you know, and everybody's doing it. Not because they had a lecture or read an article, but because they experienced it. So it happened. And again, it takes decades, and then somebody does a study and proves it, you know, that if you played the music, the operation finished sooner, the patients had less pain, all those things that uh, they evaluated. But when yeah. you have to have the courage to be different. And I'd say that to people, no matter what your business is, that if you see the truth, live it, you know, and eventually others will see it and change. I live by my experience. It's what I tell people to do. Don't live by your beliefs. They live by your experience. Then you know the truth. And the way to find that is through the symbolism of many myths and fairy tales. I always say, where did the ugly duckling see he was a swan? Where did a tiger who was brought up by goats when his mother died uh, see he was a tiger, not a goat? They were both taken to a still pond. And then they look and see, oh, I'm a swan. Oh, I'm a tiger. Now, if they were cursing, because the ugly duckling say, my mother, what a rotten woman, throw me out of the house. He's never going to see his beauty. Or if the tiger said, oh, I lost my mother. How can I ever go on living yet? No, he's never going to become who he is. But when you quiet your mind, then the truth is revealed to you. And that's when also we communicate with other species of all kinds. Because I uh, see, I hear this theme over and over again. An animal intuitive friend of mine, because uh, years ago, see, you talk about experience. When you meet somebody who says, I talk to animals, I thought, lady, you need a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> animals. But she told me, while she was in both Africa and California, where to find a lost pet in Connecticut. And I mean, her description is incredible, the details. So I immediately went and found these lost creatures. And so again, I experienced it, I believed it. But she's always saying the same thing to me, Bernie, stop screaming your pet's name, quiet your mind, you'll get into their mind. And so I talked to our animals. And I'm serious when I say that. In my head, I'll ask them a question if I want to know why they're behaving in a certain way. And they answer me, and I understand. And then I can reassure them and, you know, work something out. And I know it sounds nuts, but I know when I get an answer that I didn't make it up. In other words, if I ask the rabbit, why won't you, why won't you let me pick you up in the evening and bring you in the house? So, and the rabbit says, you don't treat the cats that way. I mean, where does that answer come from? And I said, what are you talking about? Well, you let the cat stay out at night. I said, yeah, but I'm worried about you. If a predator jumped over the fence, you don't have the ability to protect yourself the way a cat does. And once I said that to the rabbit, she stopped being a problem in the evening. I'd go out and she'd let me pick her up and bring her in the house. So that's what convinces me uh, of the truth of all this.
Let me jump in here. You said a whole lot. All great stuff. Yes, you're definitely a storyteller. <laughs> definitely. I was trying to figure out how am I going to get in here. But um, <laughs> I think there's one question because a, a lot of people, they really want to quiet their minds. Mm -hmm. Really bad, right? People try meditation. They try you know, to just sit still. And most people just simply can't do that. And I've gotten to a point where I can do that for not for extended periods of time, but through my own exploration and, and reading and really, really working on it. I'm wondering, do you have any tips for people to actually start trying to quiet their mind? Because I, I really feel like that is the start to starting to understand everything that you just talked about. Quieting your mind seems like something that people just, they can't seem to get, they can't seem to do maybe for 30 seconds, but then your mind just doesn't ever stop. It's so always, what do you have to say on that? You know, it's always, what's wrong today? What do I have to do today? Exactly. I find, like we have a dog, and I know the truth is I take him for a lot of walks, but they're my walks, if you know what I mean. Yes. Because it's getting me away out of the house into nature. Then I'm stuck with my mind. See? And two things. One I learned was being grateful. Um, I don't have to do it anymore because I am grateful. But this exercise that I always suggest to people, 26 letters in the alphabet. There are more days in the month. But what you do is the first 26 days of every month, when you get up in the morning on day one, go out and say, what three things am I grateful for that begin with the letter A? And I don't care what they are. You know, it could be applesauce, Arizona, but that you have to find three things. Okay? And I always say at the end of the month, you get a few days off. But the next month, you're not allowed to repeat what you did the month before. And what I realized when I started doing this was, this is getting tough. But I thought, isn't that wonderful? Look what you're spending your time on. What am I grateful for to begin with the letter A? And I thought, yeah, that's a lot better than, look what isn't working today. I need, you know to fix the house, the car, the this, the that, um, all my troubles. Yeah, what am I grateful for? And how much better I felt. So every morning, I like to say, thank you for everything. Uh, Lao Tzu said this, thank you for everything. I have no complaint whatsoever. Um, and when you, he said, when you realize that, the whole world belongs to you. So, you know, if you get up and say those things, it does, it changes you. Even though it may be a horrible day, just saying thank you for everything. So yeah, I talk to God, and while we're walking, I pray for loved ones, I talk to God, um, thank you. Also ask for help, I don't mind. And by that, I don't mean to give me something, but to help me achieve my potential. I know we have everything. I mean this literally when I say God loves us, I mean, Creation is made out of loving, intelligent, conscious energy. I don't think there's some old man sitting somewhere, you know. All those elements that go into it. So I say, you cut your finger, you don't bleed to death, you know. You don't stop and say, oh my God, how am I going to fix that? You put a Band-Aid on it. 
So the healing mechanisms are built into us. And to me, also the fascination of one more thing, water. Water defies the laws of physics. If you freeze a liquid, it becomes more dense and sinks. They think of hot lava flowing. What happens when it cools? It becomes a big, heavy rock. But what happens when you cool water? It becomes an ice cube and floats. Now, how did that manage that? That's where the intelligence is incredible. And, you know, we're reading about all these glaciers that are breaking off and how important water is. But if it didn't freeze, we'd be in big trouble. So, again, there's an intelligence available. And if we quiet our minds, that potential becomes present for us. Um, Solzhenitsyn, in his book, Cancer Ward, I say Jesus is a wonderful example, too, because Ernest Holmes said, what if Jesus was the only normal person who ever lived? Think about that for a minute. Uh, Do we have the same potential? I'd say, yeah. The problem is having that kind of faith. See, I've seen people go home to die and come back to the office with no cancer. What happened? Oh, you know, I left my troubles to God. That's literally a quote from a lady whose cancer disappeared. And others, because I always say there are two ways to pray, said, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I got on the bed last night and I said to God, I've had enough of this. You either take my life or get me well. I can't go. And she ranted and raved at God for at least an hour or more. And her cancer disappeared then. So I always tell people, you want to get well, have faith or argue with God. You know, but they both can work. And then where was I before I got distracted by that? <laughs> um, oh, the, well, the potential, it's, you know, triggering that off by bringing in, again, the quiet mind, the love, all those things. And then your genes get a message. Your body gets a message. And it does the best it can. And Solzhenitsyn, that's what I was thinking about, in his book Cancer Ward, said it very well. If you get well when you're not supposed to, doctors call it, oh, you've had a spontaneous remission. Hey, dumbbell. It's not spontaneous. I learned to ask people, how come you didn't die? Because I knew they played a role in it. It's not, oh, you were lucky. So you learn from it. But if you call it spontaneous, then you have nothing to learn from your patient. So, okay, you, you were lucky. But... In his book, Cancer Ward, Solzhenitsyn has one of the men come into the ward, says to the others, oh, I've got this book in the library. Look what it says here. There are cases of self-induced healing, not recovery through treatment, but actual healing, see? And it was as though self-induced healing fluttered out of the great open book like a rainbow-colored butterfly. And they all held up their foreheads and cheeks for its healing touch as a flew past. That's the solution for everybody, a rainbow-colored butterfly. Why? The rainbow is your life in order. Every color has meaning. I mean that literally. Just think of our lives. You know, why is a stoplight red? Why is go green? Okay. Why is the orange light, you know, in the intermission, you know, change? Um, All those things are meaningful. Why is purple spiritual? We can talk about that. But the colors, get your life in order, the rainbow. What is the butterfly? It comes out of the cocoon. It's a transformation. So if you want to change your life, you find harmony and rhythm by bringing that change into it. And then amazing things can happen. 
But uh, if you don't make those changes and aren't willing to, uh, then you got a problem. Yeah, that means it means so much. And I love I love the whole thing with the colors. I remember reading. Oh yeah. I remember reading in your book specifically about the pictures, about the drawing of the pictures. Right. And uh, my daughter, she's nine. She loves to draw, and she's always loved to draw. So after reading your book, I went back and I looked at all of her, you know, as many pictures as I had because they cover the house. And she is very much a rainbow kid. She loves rainbows. And all of her rainbows are always exactly in order how they are. Like, there's, there's never a different color. There's never anything like that. And I was like, oh, that, well, that makes me really happy. Now that I understand the yeah. meaning of it, it means so much more. Yeah. Yeah. I say that to people often. I say, don't tell your children why you're doing this, but say, draw a picture of our house and our family. You want to put it on the refrigerator. And then look what they draw, see? And that way, it helped me to get the parents to accept what their kids were feeling. See? Because if I said to them, you know, your daughter says she's not got enough. I mean, this is what the child said. I don't get enough time for my parents. She had cancer. But if I went to the parents and said, you know, you're not giving your daughter enough time. Oh, what do you mean? We spent a lot of time with her. But when I say, honey, draw a picture of your family, she drew herself sitting all alone in the side of the paper with the rest of the family on the sofa with an empty seat where she could have been sitting. And when the parents looked at that, it was like, thank you. And they went home and gave her more time and made her feel like part of the family. So I'm always saying to parents who are willing to look at the pictures, because when you... Uh, a lot of the teachers are always amazed when I go into schools and tell the kids to write your family. They say to me, how the hell do you know that? <laughs> that kid. I said, look at the picture, you know, and you can see like your daughter, who's got a good home and who's feeling left out. You know, they're up in their bedroom, dad's at work, mom's in the kitchen, their brother's in the front yard. Nobody's together, nobody's touching. And it's a way of learning. I've seen in my own drawings, we have five kids, where... I drew a picture and I realized, hey, that's not, you know, one of the kids isn't touching his brothers on either side. And I knew he's driving us nuts, but still it helped me see it, see, because I intended to make it look wonderful with everybody holding hands and fine. And then I see it that way and I realize, no, he needs help. And so I always tell people, draw a picture, even the parents, but don't look at it till the next day. Then you're looking at it as if someone else drew it. So you'll notice, you know, if you left your hands off or something else, um, that you can then ask, okay, what would that mean? You know, how would that limit me? And you can tell what illnesses people, what part of the body people get illnesses in, and also their emotional issues by how they draw their body. And a lot of this came from a psychiatrist, not me making all this up. But she had medical students draw a picture down at Johns Hopkins and looked them up 30, 40 years later. And she was amazed that you could tell from their drawings what diseases they were going to get and what part of the body. I mean, an example is if you don't have arms, how do you reach out? How do you get a grip on things? So they were more likely to have emotional problems, say. Um, and those are the kinds of things she could see and predict. So you learn more about yourself by doing that. And that's why I say, draw, saying to people, draw yourself in the operating room uh, or even eating vegetables, it doesn't matter. But you see their reaction to it. And if it is a negative image, then 
I tell them either don't do it or let's change your image. See, if you go home and four or five times a day say, okay, I'm picturing myself going to the operating room, everything is wonderful, I wake up after surgery, I'm comfortable, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I feel good. A week later, you get a gorgeous picture. Yeah. Not, not this black box with nobody taking care of you, but God's light, I mean, it's literally shining in, your family waiting for you, the room full of doctors, nice coat, so everything is water. Yeah. There goes the dog. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I think, was the most truly amazing thing for me to read in your book was about the pictures. I just, I just couldn't believe it. It was just such an eye opener and I loved it. And I just, I read that chapter a bunch of times, but to actually right. see what you were talking about and then look at the pictures. Yeah, I was thrilled that they would do that, um, you know, to open people's minds. I wish they would give this to every medical student so that they would then talk to patients. See, did you have a dream? I mean, I had a dream and I had a symptom of bloody urine. Um, and my partners were saying, God, you got to go get it checked. You can have cancer, the bladder, you know, you know. And um, I wasn't really worried. I just had a feeling that it wasn't anything life-threatening. But that night I had a dream in which I was running a cancer support group. And I said to everybody, introduce yourselves. And we're going around the circle. When it came my turn to say my introduction, everybody in the room said, but you don't have cancer. And I woke up knowing that I didn't have cancer, okay? In one of our books called The Book of Miracles, lady said she went to bed. A dark-skinned woman with an accent appeared and said, you have a lump in your right breast. You need to have it evaluated. She said, I woke up, and there it is, a lump. So I went to the hospital. They diagnosed me as having cancer. And they said, the woman, in, I mean, the doctor in charge of your treatment will be coming in in a few minutes. Who walks into the room? a female oncologist from India, who is the woman in her dream. Now you'd say, yeah. And I had one woman bring in her daughter and say to me, lymphoma runs in our family. I notice my daughter has large lymph nodes in her neck and I'm afraid she has a lymphoma. But I know you like drawing, so my daughter drew some pictures for you. The first picture was of herself with a big swollen neck. The second picture was this big cat with enormous claws. And I said to the mother, don't worry. She said, what do you mean, don't worry? I said, your daughter has cat scratch fever. Look at this picture. And we took out one of the nodes, and it was. It was infected node. was cat scratch fever. But when I looked at that picture, I knew damn well the kid was telling me what she had because of the way that cat's claws looked. Um, and so, yeah, I do that all the time with people. Ask them if they had dreams, get them to draw pictures, because it helped me help them to make decisions. You know, is this something to worry about? Should we do something? Can we wait? Um, and they had that inner knowledge and wisdom. But again, you're back to the quiet mind. You know, if you're frantic, uh, you're never going to get that information coming to you in a dream. Yeah, even one more dream I might share with you because I was wondering if I became a doctor for healthy reasons or unhealthy reasons. Meaning if I'm afraid of dying, you know, I'll be the doctor and I don't die on my side of the desk, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. 
and one night I had a dream in which I wasn't even the driver of the car, which I thought was very significant. Um, and the car went off a cliff. It was filled with people, friends, and it went off a cliff. And everybody was hysterical, screaming, you know, we're going to die. And I was just sitting there calmly looking out the window thinking, yeah, I'm going to die. So, you know, and they were looking at me, what's wrong with you? You're not upset. But I thought, yeah, it's because death is not my issue. So I'm not a doctor for the wrong reasons. I'm a doctor who's here to help people. Yeah, it's just amazing how that can come out of a picture that you drew that you didn't even know that was the reason. It's just, it's amazing to see and to hear those types of stories. I have to say that as as a child, I was an artist. And if I knew that that was a way of earning a living, I never would have been a surgeon but again no coincidence I, I just love drawing but I never knew anything about the art world um, and so I figured you want to use your hands being a surgeon could be good you know you'll be doing things but when I was exp exposed to the first meditation you know guided imagery I thought it was nuts I mean again see that's the trouble of our beliefs I'm sitting in the audience this is where I went to that cancer conference and met my patients too. And we're going to do a guided imagery. I thought, this is nuts. I came here to learn something, not close my eyes and make pictures. And I wasn't doing it. I was just sitting there staring at the doctor, Carl Simonton, who was on this stage. And uh, I noticed him looking at me. I thought, oh, he knows I'm not doing it. So I closed my eyes. And then being a visual person, you know, being an artist, I couldn't believe what I saw. Um, so yeah, I was convinced when we were done, that, boy, does this have meaning and power. And as I said, when I drew that picture for Elizabeth Kugler-Ross, she even brought more of it into my mind because what I drew for her was the scene I created in my meditation. Oh, and you want to get even more mystical. Part of it was you will walk on a, a path and meet an inner guide. And I met a fellow named George who was dressed strangely, very spiritual kind of you know, gown and robe and little funny flat cap on his head and things. And I didn't understand his outfit at all. But he was there and I could talk to him in meditations. Then one night I was out lecturing and I realized I'm not following my notes and my outline. I'm just standing here talking for two hours. And I thought, this is interesting. It's better than what I planned. I'll just keep talking. When I was done, the first person in the audience came up to me and said, that was better than usual. I've heard you before. The second person came up and said, there's a man standing in front of you for the whole lecture, so I drew his picture for you. And it was George. And I mean, when I say he's not just, he's got a big beard, and, you know, there's certain things about him. And then a year or two later, I spoke at a, Christian funeral, and Alga Worrell, who was a healer, a recognized healer, amazing woman, um, came up to me after the sermon that I gave over our friend's death, and she said, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, what are you asking that for? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. She said, no, there's a man standing next to you, and it was George again. Oh, but she said, no, there's a rabbi standing next to you. That's when I understood all of his outfit, that what he was wearing 
wore all the, you know, Orthodox Jewish outfit with the yarmulke and just, you know, his garments. And then it was like, oh, wow. Wow. I know he's there. I don't plan anything anymore, if you know what I mean, going to speak. Yeah, thoughts come into my head. But I always feel that I'm like the television screen, which is portraying the program. So I'm putting it out there, but it's coming from another place, not just me, but from another place. And that's why I just go on and on because, you know, it's being fed into me. And, and just one more crazy thing. I was in Stop and Shop where I always say I go for therapy because I love interacting <laughs> with people. See, everybody's wounded. Let me tell you why I say that. A woman poked me in the back in Stop and Shop. I turn around. She has a bandage over her eye. And she said, you're the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. That impressed me. She's wounded. Everybody talks to her. In my crazy sense of humor, I said, oh, it's because I know what happened. I have an abusive spouse also. <laughs> she didn't know what to do with me. But I always tell people, you want to interact with the people you work with and live with, put a bandage somewhere on your body. Show them you have a problem. Okay? And then it becomes different. And now it's hard for me to get back to what I was going to talk about with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Right. Stop and shop. I was kidding around, teasing, you know, telling stories like I'm doing now. And somebody said, Oh, hi, Dr. Siegel. I said, Shh. I said, Look, when I'm acting a little crazy, don't call my name out. <laughs> and in two seconds, she said, Okay, George. And that's the name of my guy, George. Now, when somebody in two seconds calls you by that name, that blew my mind also. I said, I got to tell you a story. Because think of every available male name, and she picks out George. So That's funny. I know he's there. And, uh, you know, that it's all available for all of us if we let ourselves come to that place and open our minds. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a mouthful. I love everything that you said, really everything. And, you know, having read the book. You have to understand this. The anthropologist, Ashley Montague, and I were speaking at a conference. And when I came off the stage, he came over to me. He said, I love what you had to say. But, of course, that's because I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. how <laughs> exactly exactly i love it though thank you for all of your knowledge this is this was definitely great and you know i've heard a lot of that stuff from reading it but actually hearing it come directly from you it's just i love it even more love it even more let me say to any professionals out there um i forgot who her name was um a uh, hispanic author she said there's only one thing truer than the truth a story and I learned from talking to doctors that if I said look this study was done in a medical journal blah, 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 they start arguing with me that was poorly controlled that journal's not of any good you know great quality blah, blah. but if I told the story it didn't threaten them they could walk out saying that was a story that was an anecdote that was just a case history yeah but it was true and it got through to them so that they then had a different view of patients and started to tell me stories. And then the beliefs shifted. But when you talk like a scientist, you end up arguing with people about the validity, yeah. you know, the control group. And uh, 
because if they don't want to believe it, they'll find ways to, you know, make what you're saying uh, inappropriate or inaccurate. Yeah, very true. Very true. Wow. All right. Very much. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really, truly enjoyed this. I had a blast. And actually getting to see you face to face was an honor. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I think that the love and the laughter, I think, are the two things that lead to survival. I would say build your life as the bricks of love, but hold it together with a sense of humor. Yeah. And that, that makes such a difference in everybody's life. So thank you, dear. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Listening to Bernie truly makes me believe that he is 100% a dear, dear soul who wants to help with all of his heart. He is one of many doctors out there who truly wants to help holistically. And I hope you go back and listen to this over and over again because he had so much to say so much in fact that I had a hard time getting a word in for the first 30 minutes but I really loved listening to him it was really like reading his book all over again so go grab the book The Art of Healing and you can check him out on social media as well Bernie Siegel thanks guys talk to you next week